Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome back, everybody, to Matt Goodwin's Substack. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Constantine Kissin, who, if you've been living on another planet, has been all over social media and the global debate this week following his appearance at the Oxford Union, uh, an appearance in the debate about whether woke culture has gone too far. Uh, I'm not sure how many clicks that video has attracted, that clip has attracted Constantine, but I'm imagining now it's well in excess of 20 million. Uh, I'm guessing it's more like 100 million at this point, uh, based (laughs) on some of the numbers I've been looking at. But uh, in any case, a lot of people have seen it. And it's great to have you with us. Thank you for giving up your time. Uh, For those of you as well who don't know, Constantine is the co-host of Trigonometry, which is essential viewing for everybody. It's uh, an online show on YouTube, uh, other platforms, you get it on Spotify, brings together lots of interesting countercultural voices on the left, on the right, in the centre. Um, you might not agree with everything and everybody that's on there, but in our uh, current media climate, I personally think it's essential uh, listening. So do check out Trigonometry. Uh, Constantine, I, I just wanted to have you on to have a discussion about the Oxford Union, what you said, has woke culture gone too far for those listeners who perhaps haven't yet watched the clip and I urge them all to do so just talk us through it has woke culture gone too far what 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 did you say well actually I talked very little about woke culture in my speech because I think we've got into a position in regards to that issue where uh, both sides are locked into their own definition so woke people go well define wokeness wokeness is just about you know protecting minorities and caring about racism and anti-woke people are like, this is all neo-Marxism and, 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 that, and there's no communication going on. These two sides are just uh, talking past each other uh, and they're, all, they're both right in their own way. Wokeness did originate as the idea that we should be sensitive about certain things and that's no bad thing. Uh, but it also has been taken over or perhaps was from the beginning. Uh, a new form of uh, Marxism that instead of being along class lines became along racial and sexual lines. Uh, But I didn't want to talk about any of that, mainly because I'm so tired of regurgitating all these points every time. I wanted to actually go out there and see if I can persuade these young people who I am convinced. And, you know, Claire Fox, who's a mutual friend of ours, she, you know, she gave me a metaphorical slap around the face at a dinner party a few a few months ago when she was kind of gently pointing out to me that I should never forget that, you know, there are people out there who are open to be persuaded. And so I thought if I'm going to be at the Oxford Union where there's a lot of bright young people, let's see if I can make an argument that doesn't trigger any of the usual cultural talking points and so what i did talk about instead is i said look we're told that your generation cares most of all uh, more than anything and you've actually alluded to it in some of your work Matt. You, i remember one of the times we had you on the show you mentioned that the politics of climate change is going to get 
increasingly significant. I said, look, you guys, your generation cares about climate change. We're told you've got climate anxiety. You know, Greta is sent Greta of climate change is your hero. You know, I teased them gently and I said, you know, if that is what you care about, here are some facts about it, about how, you know, making yourself a victim, which is really my main issue with, with wokeness. It's the ideology of victimhood. It's encouraging people to to think of themselves as being oppressed and victimized. And as someone who is a dark-skinned, first-generation immigrant to this country, I 20 years ago, I was sleeping in a park in Edinburgh because I couldn't afford rent. And, you know, a few weeks after that, I got a letter from the Home Office saying you have two weeks to leave the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, I know what it's like uh, to, to, to have a difficult period in your life. So, uh, and I know for a fact that the solution to that is not to feel like a victim, but rather to work harder, to think you can achieve, to think that you can create and build things. And that's the answer. Uh, if you think climate change is the most important issue, I, you know, hopefully with a few jokes and, and a bit of gentle prodding, I made the point that if you young people, uh, and we need young people, Matt, let's be clear, we need young people to step up. Um, the only the only thing that they can do to solve climate change is to come up with technology and science that is going to address that issue because we in britain produce one percent of global co2 emissions we're responsible for two percent uh and even if we you know turn the light the light switches and all slowly die uh that's going to make no difference to climate change so uh i hope i made a rational argument and uh i think you know based on what i've the feedback that i got on the night and also later you know i've, I've changed a few people's minds which i'm very pleased about yeah and i think one of the challenges and you've also alluded to this on on Twitter, and again, your Twitter feed is um, is very insightful, and and I recommend it. You've alluded to the point about carrying moderates with you in this debate, because mm. one of my frustrations in, and I think we share this. You look at how polarized Western societies are becoming between, you know, liberals and conservatives, or uh, you know, uh, sort of woke and, and non woke. Um, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of um, effort to take moderates, ideological moderates um, on that journey. And a lot of people out there, you can see in the surveys and the polls, a lot of people who are sitting in the middle, basically either too scared to say something, um, sort of accept that much of what's happening in universities and schools, the NHS and whatever is kind of insane, are very, very sceptical of gender identity theory. That's the one thing, by the way, that just really irritates everybody. Only about 20% of people support, you know, allowing 13-year-olds to change their gender or whatever. Um, but yet at the same time, they feel they can't speak up. And I think one of the intriguing things about your position, why I wanted to have the conversation with you, is because it's, you know, you either get the kind of the mad sort of really radical right-wingers on this, or you get the ultra committed wokesters on the other end but there don't seem to be many people in what you might call the moderate middle who are willing to publicly express this critical thinking about wokeism and what's happening you know to the left and identity politics and so on i think that positioning is really really important i agree with you uh, and i actually you know when i say post woke the issue that we've got is uh, as you say you've got uh, slightly crazy woke people, slightly crazy anti-woke people, and we can all name names for, for both of those positions. Um, I think the problem is slightly beyond that even. It's not just that we need moderates to speak out against trans ideology or that we need moderates to uh, remember that free speech is a bedrock of Western civilization rather than being some kind of right-wing dog whistle or whatever the narrative is. 
I think the problem is that those of us who dislike wokeness have failed to this point to articulate a positive vision of the future. If And you know this much better than I do, that in, in terms of politics, you, of course, negative messaging works and it will get attention. But if you really want to win, you need a positive vision, as you always call the sunny uplands. Uh, and I think that's a failure that maybe not a failure is too, too harsh a criticism. I think we were all a little bit uh, blindsided by this ideology. It emerged so rapidly that some of the tenants and the kind of slogans are so wild, uh, you know, all men are potential rapers, like all, all this crazy stuff. And you're just going, where did this come from? And how, how are we having this conversation? I, I remember about two minutes ago, we seemed to be pretty rational. Um, but what we need to do, in my opinion, and I've been talking to a bunch of people and I've got various projects that I, I'm, I'm planning around this issue, we've got to articulate what we're for. Because unless you can articulate what you're for, I don't think you're going to get people on side uh, in the long run. Everyone can unite around, you know, gender ideology has gone too far. Everyone can unite around, you know, free speech is important. But even free speech is kind of a defensive value. It's like saying, can we please have a level playing field for our ideas? And your enemies aren't going to give you that uh, or your opponents. They've worked out that the best tactic for them right now is to suppress uh, dissent because, you know, as we've talked about before, the arguments, in my opinion, are not on their side. So what we have to do is start to formulate a positive vision of the future. And I think part of it, this is why I picked the issue of climate change as a, as a conversation. Um, there is a doomsday cult uh, around all of these issues. It's, it's like, and the narrative deep down, I feel, is kind of like, we are bad. The West is bad. The West has been bad. And what we have to do is be punished. We have to atone for our sins. We must punish ourselves with poverty. We must punish ourselves with energy insecurity. We must punish ourselves, you know, with the idea that we are the most racist people in the world when all the evidence shows that this country is one of the most tolerant in the world and so on and so forth. And so we got to start thinking about what is the positive message? Why should I join your team? Why should I subscribe to your view? Okay, you don't like woke people. Okay, cool. But that's not enough. That's not something that people can unite behind. And that is where it gets difficult because that's where people start disagreeing with each other because it's much easier to unite around not liking woke people than it is to unite around a particular set of positive values. Um, but I think that's got to be, and I think technological innovation, a faith in humanity a belief that if you look throughout history, the great leaps of progress, including cultural progress, are actually largely technology driven, uh, whether it's the emancipation of women or all sorts of other things. They are a product of uh, the, the invention of the pill, the automation of domestic uh, appliances and all of these sort of things that allowed women to be uh, to be more free to go into the workplace. And then feminism comes along and sort of makes that final push over the line. And I think technological, uh, you know, an optimism, a technological optimism has to be a big part of it. The other problem, of course, is that, you know, uh, since the, the, that most deceitful book, The Population Bomb, came out in the in whenever it came out, that's had a huge impact on the public consciousness around population and having children. And there are quite legitimate reasons why people defer having children as I think both you and I have done uh, until about as late as possible, frankly, at least in yeah. my case. But, but, but also there is an ideological underpinning to that as well, which is 
you know, that we are extending adolescence for so long. And I think a more positive vision of family and children. Uh, and I, I don't mean the sort of like, you know, Auburn style, you know, you, you, you get whatever for having five children. I just mean a cultural understanding that children are a contribution to your own worldview. And, you know, my generation, the millennials and the one after, we are, you know, probably the most selfish and self-focused. Well, guess what? Having kids makes you happy. Like that's a that's a message, I think, that, you know, and it's not normative. I'm not saying, you know, we must impregnate all the women. Like that's that's how these things get framed sometimes. But I don't think about it like that at all. I just think, you know, having a child has been a transformational experience for me and for my wife. And I think for most people, that's what it is. And we should be unembarrassed about saying that without sort of like, you must have the, ch like, we don't, <laughs> we don't need that. I just think as a, not normative, but a sort of like, here's just some, some of our opinions about this. And yeah. here's some of our lived experience. If yeah. You like. But I think also you never really truly grasp personal responsibility and mm -hmm. and what it means until until you really enter into that environment and um also simply from a policy perspective i mean if you if you if you genuinely want a, a measure that that gives more return on investment than pretty much anything else then you basically want a society with strong and secure families because the evidence on what happens when you have societies that are ridden with family breakdown as indeed we're now creating a society that has that the highest rates of family breakdown in in Europe uh, are in the UK. And I say this as someone that came from uh, a pretty, pretty disastrous family background. Um, you know, the effects of that are visible across the spectrum, right? Economically, socially, culturally. But just to go back to this point about post-woke, I think I agree with you on the need for a positive vision that is capable of uniting people. But I also think it's, we're still in the stage of explaining to people actually what is challenging about wokeism and the reason i say that is you know we've got a very vibrant online community and many of us spend all of our time discussing these issues but you know even even still out there in the wider world actually still a lot of people will say in my focus groups and polls i don't even know what woke is i don't really know what cancel culture is all i know is that we're arguing over stuff like empire and history but it doesn't really make much of a difference to my world and i still think there is actually a battle to be won in terms of communicating to people who want to be seen to be nice who want to do things that help marginalized people and who are very nervous about this critique of wokeism because they sort of view it as being you know um, delivered by people who don't want to be nice. So I think the the battle is very much still to be won in, in communicating with people, okay, what is the problem with wokeism? And I've always argued that I think wokeism is deeply problematic um, for a number of reasons, but all of them basically point to the way in which it directly undermines liberal society. And I say this as someone that, you know, I describe myself as a classical liberal. You know, firstly, it, it, it's undermining individual rights. It doesn't really have any interest in individual rights. It's, it, it instead relegates people to being members of fixed identity groups. And, and that's already deeply problematic. It views those groups in a binary zero sum way that they are now um, pitted against one another in a constant never ending competition over resources, which is the opposite of what the first generation of civil rights campaigners uh, wanted. Um, more worryingly for somebody like me who works within a university, wokeism basically has zero interest in objective scientific inquiry and empirical evidence. It is genuinely 
not interested at all in any evidence which undermines its central ideological claims. And the most worrying aspect of this new religion, as John McWhorter would call it, is that um, it's so embedded within the very institutions that are supposed to be the defensive, you know, the front line um, uh, against the assault on reason and the values of the Enlightenment. Yet every day I'm sort of, you know, shocked and discovered to find that it's the journals, it's the academic journals, it's the universities, it's the professors who are basically ceding all of this ground to wokeism, which will completely disregard any evidence that challenges its claims, whether it's regarding you know, I wrote a piece in Substack this week about just how well minority groups are doing in Britain. I mean, this is just like completely counter to the dominant narrative in the country, but the evidence on it is overwhelming. They're doing much better than white Brits are doing, uh, you know, across a whole range of areas, education, the labour market, in some cases, uh, in health, life expectancy, you can go on and on. But I think it's deeply problematic because it's just, it's utterly dismissive of the scientific method and it also and this is why i think your critique is so important it has zero interest in the cross-cutting um, ties that bind groups together whether that's national identity whether it's our shared history whether it's our shared culture whether it's our shared values and it, it even goes further than that as roger scruton once pointed out it is fundamentally about the politics of repudiation it is about repudiating everything that has been accumulated over time that we have inherited from previous generations and it is fundamentally about repudiating uh, that western cultural inheritance and that's why i think we've got to lay out the problems with wokeism in a very rational way we need to talk about why is it problematic why should liberal moderates classical liberals those in the middle why should they get involved actually in this intellectual battle and why are the radical progressives really so um, challenging and troublesome for for holding our societies together? Well, those are all very, very good points that I obviously agree with. And I think they're fantastic arguments for people like me and you. I don't think that is the way that you communicate with the general public on these issues because it's too complex and too complicated and people have busy lives. They've got families and kids and you know problems to you know the boiler's broken down do you know what i mean they don't have time for this uh we do and for us you're right yeah your analysis is spot on it's what i talk about in, in my book an immigrant's love letter to the west it's why andrew which doyle is excellent talks. by the way i recommend that it's a brilliant thank book. you well it's it's also what andrew doyle talks about in the new puritans i mean we all let's be honest you you gave a brilliant summation there but i think most of us now understand what the problems with wokeness are it's a centrifugal force that is pulling apart western society right that is that is what it's designed to do um and so yes but my question is if you, if i'm busy if i've got a, a you know my car's broken down and i'm running from one job to another and i've got this and this and that like what is what is the thing that you're selling me and that is not inspiring we need something else we like to me this is one of the things i talked about we have to start reframing and I don't mean we, that we need to go out there and go wokeness is racism, but fundamentally, as someone who comes from a minority background and an immigrant, it, there's no question to me that these diversity initiatives are effectively a new form of racism. And I don't, don't just mean racism against white people. It's also racism against the minorities. 
um, the, the the way that we and and so I think you have to just think about well what is the positive message and by the way thank God someone articulated a, you know a few decades ago a, a certain preacher in America the idea that we should all be treated on the content of our character and we have to get to a point where we go look this is the dream now we're not living it and we'll probably never get there because we're human beings we're we're basically apes with a slightly bigger brain we're tribal and so on however we are aiming for that we are aiming to be treating each other on the content of our character and anyone whether they're a skinhead or a woke blue-haired person who says that we should treat people on the basis of their skin color is a racist that is what they are and we are in this country are not racists. That's why we believe people should be treated on the content of their character, not their skin color, their sexuality, their, their sex, whatever. Right. So that's I think that's one part of the message. And to me, that is a positive vision of the future, because, Matt, let's be very honest. Um, and I'm allowed to say this. Most people are not. We live in a multi-ethnic society. They are much, much harder to retain cohesion and mutual respect and understanding in than a country that is more of an ethnically homogenous country. And that means we have to work harder than most other places to retain that cohesion. And that means the re-racialization of the Western world is one of the most dangerous trends that we face at the moment that could, if it's allowed to run amok, as it has been for some time, lead to all sorts of very dangerous outcomes, as it has done throughout history. Right. Antagonizing different racial groups against each other, saying these people are bad and these people are good because they've got the, this shape of nose and that shape of nose or this skin color that does not end well. It never has ended well. And anyone who attempts to engage in that is a racist. That's, I think, the argument that we should be uh, attempting to advance on that front. And then, as I say, I think you've got to think about, look, the, the one thing, you know, as someone who works with students and the one thing I think we're all aware of now is young people uh, crave meaning and purpose. And we live in a society in which increasingly they don't have that. They don't have meaning and purpose. They don't know what 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 is a good life exactly. No one's told them. And we have to start articulating that. And that's why I think part of that, you know, the fact that successive governments have, have just been negligent in addressing the housing crisis is a big part of where all this comes from. And if you fix that, if you make it easier for people to pair up and buy a place and get together and start having kids, they will. Some of them will. And the ones of them that do will experience a level of fulfillment yeah. and happiness that, that you know, people who spend their life on Tinder going on unsatisfactory dates don't. And we have to offer them an opportunity to go, here's the choice. You can carry on living this life or there's a better option for you. And if you want to do that and you want to try it out and you find it more fulfilling and your friend's happy and you are still in your late 30s and you haven't got kids and you're, you're drinking a lot and whatever, well, that's the choice. And, you know, and, and the next generation will look at that. And as you know, they drink less, for example, right? So, so young people, are, and we, there's an interesting opportunity, but we have to, we have to give them a positive vision. Uh, we have to start framing things in slightly. You, you're a smart guy and you're going to frame the arguments and I, I, I'm just about smart enough to understand them. But I think we've got to get to a point where we start to articulate these things in a simple and positive fo focused way. That's, I think, how you start to win arguments with the ordinary person. Yeah. And I, I was struck this week reading, um, I think on the same day that I watched your Oxford Union talk, there's a nice essay by Sam Abrams um, on real clear politics about what he calls um, 
SWFs, single woke females. Mm. And Sam basically makes the argument that if you look at data in the US, basically you've got this sharp rise over the last 30 years in, in people living alone and people staying single for longer or forever and just basically going in and out of transient relationships, but never really buying a home, never getting on the housing uh, ladder. Uh, and so as a consequence, the things that come through that, uh, stable relationships, uh, marriage, family, um, parenthood, all of the things that basically um, might imbue those values of responsibility and agency become even harder to bring about. And he also shows, I think, quite convincingly that those that the generation in particular of young Zoomers, so people born after 1996, um, the first generation to spend their entire life online um, on every on most surveys we've got, I should say they are very different in how they view these issues around council culture, political correctness. They're much more supportive of restricting free speech. They are much more supportive of prioritizing what they see as anti-discrimination over free expression and free speech. Um, but time and time again, it is often young Zoomer women, especially mm. graduate women, who are like off the charts on a lot of this stuff. And Sam's point is basically, unless you can get to this positive frame, unless you can get back to ensuring that Zoomers have a realistic chance of buying a house, mm. have a realistic chance of having a family and have a realistic chance of actually having a, a sort of um, a life that doesn't involve, you know, mum and dad working solidly for 15 hours a day while somebody else looks after the kids. Mm -hmm. um, you're basically just going to have an ideal breeding ground for all of these for all of these political ideas. So I see a lot of overlap there between between what you're saying and also what I think the evidence is is showing, which is that generationally, you know, this problem, I think, is actually going to get going to get much stronger. Uh, much bigger before it begins to ever weigh. I think that is almost certainly true. And yet I'm also very optimistic because I think, um, you know, the the emperor is naked situation is only going to last so long. Um, you see, and you mentioned gender ideology earlier, you see the sort of mind bending that people now have to engage in in public to, to be able to talk about that issue without losing their jobs. Most people know what a woman is. You know what I mean? Like they really, really do. And and so I, I think that's going to that's going to start to have an impact over time, particularly as we build up slowly, but we build up cultural institutions and comedy and satire and music and all of these things. They're naturally homes for people who want to rebel against the orthodoxy of their day. That's why I got into stand up comedy. And then I quickly discovered that that's not what most stand up in stand up, the stand up industry, the comedy industry in this country is not about that at all anymore. Maybe I was just naive, but you will always have a small number of people like me who want to push back against the orthodoxy of the day. And as that happens, because you see, this is where the Internet comes in, because 10 years ago, if you wanted to be a comedian, you had to be someone that was approved of by the gatekeepers. There was no choice. There was five people who controlled your entire fate. Five people in Britain decided whether you were successful or not. And that meant that for the most part, they were dictating the narrative. Now we've got the internet to go around that. And if you create a successful uh, comedy show or discussion show, whatever it is on the internet, you can prove uh, that there is an audience for that and you can attract a bigger audience. And then, which is the next step is 
and something I'm very keen to get involved with is we have to start building the alternative institutions for all those things. And that means, you know, whether that's Comedy Unleashed, which is a comedy night that, that runs in, in East London once a month where comedians, it's not anti-woke, it's just comedians can come and make the jokes they want. Right. Um, and all sorts of other things that are bigger and reach more, more of an audience. As we build those institutions, my my uh, expect, expectation is this will be culture led. This is why I always talk about the fact that you have to make whatever it is that we're talking about. You have to make a call. You're not going to convince young people by wagging your finger in the face and talking about personal responsibility. Like that's not how that works. That's not how young people think. Uh, you have to make it cool. You have to make it rebellious. You have to be countercultural. That's how you win them over. And I think comedy, satire, uh, entertainment is going to be a massive part of turning that around. So let me just let me just press press uh, press you on that a bit. Mm. One of the reasons why. I got involved with Substack, started writing on Substack, you now write on Substack, um, is because of something a friend of mine, David Goodhart, said to me once, and I think it's a really important point. He said, you know, the interesting thing about where we are today is that for the first time pretty much in history, we have an economically independent thinking class, right, that is not beholden to the institutions, is not beholden to publishers, uh, is not beholden to gatekeepers, can basically write what they want when they want, right? And that to me is the power of originally blogging, but now Substack, I mean, it just seems to me like everyone now is getting the Substack, right? Mm -hmm. I'm almost sort of at, at the point where I'm like worried that we're going to have too many people on Substack because everybody's going to say, well, you know, whereas before I had a what two or three subscriptions every month now i've got like a hundred but i think we've yeah. got you know we've got this flowering ecosystem of writers and thinkers mm -hmm. which i think is really important and why is that happening and i think you're spot on because if you look at pretty much most of the big institutions and this is partly to be self-interested this is what my next book is about um but if you look at most of the big institutions you look at politics you look at media you look at the creative industries you look at the the big you know museums galleries publishing houses they are disproportionately dominated by people from the professional managerial class whose parents often belong to the same class who have passed through the elite universities and who tend to share the same values. So the national conversation, the policy conversation, the cultural conversation is incredibly um, narrow and is shaped and influenced by a group that probably represents no more than 20% of the country, right? That is strongly liberal, that is urban, that is uh, economically privileged, that is also typically verging between, you know, hyper-liberalism, wokeism, whatever. And I think that's partly what's going on with this fragmentation that you talk about, that a lot of people over the last 10 years, as we've gone through these cultural questions of migration, gender identity, you know, should we allow kids to effectively decide are they male female whatever how we think of history that those conversations have been incredibly one-sided that they've been beamed at us through the adverts through the films through the television through the reconfiguration of drama you know all of that stuff which has basically at times been openly misleading about who we are right mm -hmm. and you can see this in the survey data if you ask people to you know tell us um you know what share of britain is um, you know, uh, black British or black Pakistani or LGBT or whatever, 
um, people are now sort of thinking they're living in this kind of like <laughs> sort of overwhelmingly like rapidly diverse society. And right. you know, yes, there is diversity, but it's nowhere near what people think because when they're looking at the institutions, you know, the institutions are kind of telling them they're in this sort of particular environment. And of course, just to interrupt briefly, man, but please carry on. Is you got to remember as well. I, uh, I think you and I both live outside of London. Uh, and that, I mean, this is one of the things that I find so mind boggling about when I see like these adverts that we get on TV, where it's like everyone is from. A, I'm like, <clears throat> these people clearly have never been outside of London because yeah. the rest of the country doesn't look like that outside the big cities, you know, yeah. Yeah. outside of Birmingham, uh, London and, and a couple of other major cities in this country. It's actually, you know, it's not as diverse and it's not because people there are like keeping black people out. It's it's because it's the minorities tend to concentrate around the big cities. Yeah. And and so the disconnect you're talking about, I, I always sort of like as I drive through Kent or on my way down to Hastings to have some fish and chips or whatever, like I look around and I go, can you imagine how odd our media landscape looks to these people? Just on a visual level, they they must think that they're being broadcast to from like a different country. Just that's how I think that's how gigantic that disconnect has become. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think the, the institutions of tomorrow are going to come from, because, um, you know, you're right that we can bypass the gatekeepers. But you're also right that about Substack, your suspicion is correct. It's unsustainable. No one is going to be subscribed to 100 Substacks. And you're already starting to see the Barry Weisses, the Michael Schellenbergers, who are incorporating several writers under their umbrella. They are building the New York Times of tomorrow. That's what's happening. That's what's going to happen in comedy and elsewhere. Yeah, and I think that, I think firstly on, you know, the geographical divide point, just 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 before coming back to that, I completely agree with you. Ever since I moved out of London and spend more time actually where I grew up in Hertfordshire and go back into London, it kind of hits me harder every time because you sort of enter this parallel universe. You know, mm. you go, you know, you have to pay £12.50 to move your car within certain zones. You go on the underground. You're basically bombarded by political ideology, right? There's there's warnings about hate crimes. The, you know, the adverts are of a particular, um, you know, persuasion. And in my lifetime, you know, I, I, it's just become a lot more visible to me. And that geographical divide, we can see in all of the research, there's a nice paper by um, David Luca at the LSE recently, and he shows that of all the big major cities around the world, basically over the last 20 years, they've become kind of hyper-liberal, basically. Mm. So as the graduates have kind of got sucked into the big cities, and I tell my students, you know, I say, if you get a, if you get a first class or a 2-1 degree, the research suggests that within six months of graduating, you will be living in London. You know, they just, London's just this kind of massive magnet, sucks in all the graduates. And then over time, you know, these compositional effects just push the cities further and further away from everybody else, politically, socially, culturally. And I think that's one of the big challenges, actually, that we're going to face going forward. But it brings me back to the importance of, of rival ecosystems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think without being, you know, it's, it's always easy to be pessimistic about where we are and where we're going. But actually, one of the really optimistic um, uh, or one of the more positive aspects of, of British society to me over the last 10 years has been the um, proliferation of different media and different um, different cultural institutions and voices. I mean, if you actually look around the media landscape in Britain today, you know, we are nowhere near as dependent upon the big four 
channels or even more generally the BBC as we were a decade mm. ago. There are, you know, there are many different magazines, online platforms, YouTube shows, independent writers uh, than, there, than there used to be. There's a proliferation of social media. So people are being exposed, I think, which is healthy to cross-cutting ideas to different views. So I think that's a positive, but I think it goes back to your point that if there is, you know, in post-woke, what does it involve? Well, it involves building a rival ecosystem and building an ecosystem that's connected and which is able to um, create some kind of cultural power, some kind of cultural currency. I agree. And uh, that's, you know, I can't talk about it yet, but I'm working on a couple of things that will make a big step in that direction. And I know other people are as well. Um, I think that's what we need. The alter- without the alternative ecosystem, I mean, look at look at my speech uh, last week or this week and whenever it was that it came out. <laughs> it's been a long week. Look at my speech. Uh, I have not received a single invitation from a left-leaning publication or show to talk about it. When I said... I, I am not right wing. I'm sort of I, I always joke that I identify as politically non-binary. I, I don't have a strong political tribal instinct. In fact, I have a very strong anti-tribal instinct. I want to speak to both sides. I'm happy to be interviewed. I've been on the BBC in all sorts of contexts. I've been on Good Morning Britain in all sorts of contexts. I've been, uh, you know, on all these shows where my views are probably not that welcome. And I welcome the opportunity to to speak with those people. But they won't invite me. And that is because they, uh, well, I actually don't know why that is, to be honest. I'd like to know. But I think given the extent of the coverage that the right has given this, it shows you how viral the speech was. And yet these people are not interested. And I think for that reason, we have to build. And I don't think it's an anti-woke ecosystem. Is Like I said in my tweet about how I don't think the future is woke. I don't think it's anti-woke. The future is post-woke. And I'm just, my innate sense of the British public is this, Matt. I don't think the British public want to turn on their TV to watch the England game and see three former England players banging on about racism or another right-wing platform bang on about neo-Marxist BLM. I think the majority of the British public want to turn on their TV and watch the bloody England game without politics. That's where I think the public are at. And that is, I think, the ecosystem that we need to build. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly, um, I think that that is true. I think the evidence basically supports that, that you've got a kind of, what is it that made Britain distinct historically? You know, you go back to the 1950s. One of the arguments was that it was, you know, the reason why we didn't fall into extreme ideologies was because we had this civic culture. This was the Armand Verber uh, book. Let me do the academic thing for a minute. But their argument was that the reason why we weren't like the Germans, the Italians and the French was because we had this ingrained political culture, which was which was fundamentally civic, right? That we were uh, consensual. We were moderate. We uh, engaged in civil society. We had the little platoons or today's version of the comedy unleashed. You know, we were basically a people that were very suspicious of ideologues. We were very suspicious of totalitarians and authoritarians. And that is why, by the way, Mm. I think the Brits today are very instinctively suspicious of wokeism because they view it as a radical ideology that is now basically screaming at families that if their 10 year old kid wakes up tomorrow and decides that actually they're not a boy they're a woman or they're non-binary or whatever mum and dad have to go along with it and I think a lot of 
parents and families out there, which I do, by the way, think is going to be the next big issue in British politics. Mm-hmm. I think the the gender identity stuff, I think, is going no to be question. absolutely... I, I've said from day one, that will be what breaks wokeness. Yeah, no, I think we are basically three years behind America on that, yeah. right? I mean, I'll give you a, I'll give you a micro example. My, my daughter is 14 months, right? Okay. We went to a local library to do a kind of rhyme time thing with, with other uh, babies and uh, their parents. And um, this thing began, this is Hertfordshire, right? This is like suburbs. This thing began with the librarian introducing the teddy bears um, by announcing what their pronouns were, right? Okay. I can tell you pretty much every family in that scenario, in that room was completely bewildered and lost by why this was necessary and why this was happening. And I think COVID with parents being at home and seeing what is happening within certain schools, what's happening within certain institutions. And, you know, Lisa and Andy, for example, coming out and saying, actually, if a 13 year old wants to change their gender legally, they should be allowed to. This is going to send this issue way up the priority list for voters because they just think this is absolutely bananas. And I'm polling them every week on this stuff. Like if you said to the British population, should we should we uh, uh, refer to pregnant women as pregnant persons, uh, as some of the NHS guidance suggests, that's a 5% position. Like 5% of the country think that's a good idea or they, they would support it. So like wokeism on all of this stuff is actually like really just you know, a radical minority kind of pushing, pushing hard and pushing its views. So the more that this really comes out into the open, and the more that we have these discussions, I think actually it's going to almost run out of steam under its own contradictions. But it's also going to be exposed to be everything the British hate, which is a very authoritarian, a very inflexible, a very dogmatic ideology right i mean watch the owen jones video this week on Mm. you know his view as to why you know trans you know the trans issue is ultimately going to win that isn't a moderate video that's not a consensual video that is basically a very aggressive divisive view of society and that is fundamentally out of kilter with this notion of britain as being a civic culture as being about consensus and moderation and that to me is perhaps the sort of you know, the, the, the hidden strength in the anti-woke argument in Britain, mm. which means we're not actually like America. You know, we're not like America in that sense. Our political culture, our civic culture is very different. You know, we are not, I think, going to be sucked into this to the extent that the Americans are. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I'm a bit of an optimist. I think the Brits don't really have much patience for it. Well, I hope you're right. And I, th- I think the obvious point that you make is, of course, correct, which is once you start messing with people's kids you're going to find yourself on the sharp end of a, of a backlash very, very quickly. Uh, we both know that, you know, the protecting your children is the strongest instinct that a mother and a father have. And if you start to mess around with that, you're going to lose, you know, th- this is one of the amazing things that you've seen. I mean, look at what uh, gender critical feminists, how quickly they've abandoned the Labour Party. And that is a bond that would have been very difficult to break only a few years ago. If you think about the fact that these are largely left-leaning women, I mean, the idea that they would vote for a conservative party led by a Boris Johnson, like a serial adulterer and blah, blah. Like these are just, they're not value matched at all. But they are prepared to at least not vote for the Labour Party and eventually even vote for the Conservative Party because they feel that strongly simply about the ideological side of it. And then you add the kids into it. I mean, yeah, it, it's a it's a vote loser for them for sure. Um, 
And I think, Matt, I agree with you about the British attitude to things. I think you're right. However, technology is powerful and we have imported, we've downloaded American uh, ideology into the British context. And it is powerful. I mean, the, the example that summed it up for me uh, is when we had uh, the summer of BLM, when you had protesters in central London uh, saying to police officers, hands up, don't shoot. To <laughs> cops who don't have guns. Right. Yeah. So these people haven't even thought about what it is that they're saying because they've simply downloaded it. And for me, actually, I I'm an admirer of America and I'm admirer of many aspects of American uh, American culture. And I think we've just downloaded the wrong bit. The bit that I think we should be looking at and downloading instead is looking at the productivity problem in this country. We do not invent things. We do not make things. We are not leading the world in in generating progress. And I don't mean progress on the on, on in this woke sense. I mean actual progress. We're not yeah. driving industry. We're not driving innovation. We're not driving technology forward. Yeah. We, we are a nation of people who squabble about how to divide tax revenue instead of a nation of people who's obsessed with generating more in building and creating and expanding and that to me is a huge shift that we have to make as a country because i despair when i look at the way we have political conversations in this country now it almost feels to me like when people talk about you know public sector pay or strikes or whatever like we seem to think that the money to pay for things is is like it comes out of the thin like the aliens send us down a big chest of gold and it's just about how do we divide it up and we've forgotten that the way this country was built the greatness of britain there is a reason that we are where we are a tiny country globally with a tiny population that punches way above its weight economically militarily diplomatically there's a reason for that and that reason is that in the 18th and 19th century this country was a hub of innovation and it was a hub of industry right and it was a hub of creativity and i'm not saying we have to start building coal-powered plants again or whatever i'm just saying we have to think about who are we and what are we about because if all we are is about the city of london and then everyone else being sort of like uh you know working in the public sector we are not going to be a country that anyone with any drive or ambition is going to want to live in for 20 well, years from now. 100%. And that was my always my frustration with the aftermath of the Brexit referendum. Whatever your views about Brexit, remain, leave, whatever. To me, and I remember we talked about this at the time, actually, on Trigonometry just shortly afterwards. And, you know, we had this discussion. I was going to make the point that, for me, I was always okay with Brexit because I felt that this country needed a radical overhaul economically and politically. As you say, the, the, the model of the economy just wasn't working anymore. It was London-centric. It was based on financial services. Nobody builds anything anymore. Manufacturing's collapsed. Coastal towns have been left. Small towns have been left to rot. Uh, and we needed a new conversation, a new, a new vision. And to be frank, my view now, as I'm sure you agree with, the political class, the media class have completely failed to have that conversation, to deliver on it, to basically do anything interesting uh, in repositioning the country long term. I mean, if you think about, you know, what we've seen over the last six months or so, okay, fine, we've had COVID in Ukraine, which has distracted people for understandable reasons. But really, the only big reforms that have come since Brexit have been mainly about deregulating financial services, right? Leveling up hasn't really been thought through seriously. The productivity problem, as you say, has not been addressed. We have no long-term growth strategy. 
We've got massive amounts of debt. Nobody seems to want to level with the country about, by the way, guys, we're paying, I think, eight billion pounds a month mm. in debt, debt interest payments, eight billion. Mm. Like, it's crazy. Nobody is really leveling with the country about what we're going to do uh, with regards to debt. Well, I'm going to be on Question Time next week, and I'm going to give it both barrels on that issue, Matt. Yeah, I mean, it's, we have it's, to start talking old. about it. Yeah. There's no point. Like, we, we keep talking about who's owed how much money. It's like, we don't have any money. <laughs> we don't. Look, we are the equivalent of a couple that brings in 50 grand a year between the two of them that's got a debt of like 55 and it's growing every year. And and, and you're squabbling about, do we buy the kids a new place? What what are you talking about? No, and we also, we aren't willing to really, I think, level with the country about, you know, take the NHS as, as an example. We give the NHS and social care about 200 billion every year. And everybody's terrified about saying to the British people, it's not working. We need to completely re reform it. We need to change it because it's become this national religion. And I think underneath all of this, to be honest, and you've just hit the nail on the head, we, we are, we're just not interested in ideas anymore. We're not a serious political culture anymore. We are anti-intellectual. We're anti-ideas. Yes. We're not like the French, actually, or the Italians or the Germans who have serious conversations about where they want to take their countries and obviously they all you know they go in different directions they make mistakes but we are we're just not interested i mean if you turn on any major news channel or program and i'm glad that, that you're going on question time and i hope you can knock some sense into people but if you turn on Newsnight, you turn on question time you turn on these mainstream shows that should be about ideas they are basically surface level very thin very un, um you know rishi sunak didn't wear a seatbelt yeah, just, just, it's, it's, I remember a, a, an FT columnist saying this to me recently in a conference, and he said, you know, the problem with the UK is the UK is not a serious country. And I was outraged and sort of thought, well, you know, don't, how can you say that about, you know, remember G7, major economy, etc. But actually, the more I reflect on what he was saying, I think he's right. I think culturally, politically, we, 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 we are, we have, we have retreated into a very immature conversation about who we are and where we want to go and there are very few leaders in the country today that actually want to level with the with with people about the constraints and the the challenges that we face I think that's a reality of Britain I agree with you completely and that is why I think what we have to start thinking about and the phrase has just come to me as you and I are speaking we need a British renaissance mm. that's what we need because the fact is uh, that this productivity thing We've tried to plug that gap by bringing in Bulgarian remaining PhDs to clean our toilets and to serve our coffee. That is not a long-term strategy. Uh, and if you look at the the situation that we've ended up in, you know the productivity isn't going to come from doing that. We have to give young people a sense of, you know, I don't necessarily think the British, you know, you're never going to have a British dream that is equivalent to the American dream. You know, British people refuse to have dreams in my experience. But there is a there is a a positive vision. I come back to this that we have to have about look, look at me. Look at me. I am a first generation immigrant. I came here. Yes, my parents sent me to boarding school. But by the time I got to university, I had no money and I was sleeping in a park. And within 20 years, I have a successful YouTube show. I have a Sunday Times best-selling book. I'm regularly doing well in all, all different things, right? If I can do that, you so can you. If you're born in this country, you're born with a tremendous amount of opportunity. Tremendous amount of opportunity. You, We talk about, you know, white privilege or male privilege or this privilege or that privilege. 
in this country, the main privilege is one that we all share, which is Western privilege and British privilege, if you like. And that means that if you have talent and ambition and drive and skills and determination, you can make it. You can make something of yourself in this country. And if we encourage people to think in that way, we will start the businesses that are going to shape the future of the world in this country instead of getting our talking points about how to live our lives from Silicon Valley. I don't want to hear what some woke person in California thinks about how I should live my life. And I don't think the British public do. And that means we have to start creating the cultural, technological, industrial future of the world in Britain. And we have everything we need to do that. A highly educated population, an extreme amount of cultural heritage to rely on. We've been the hub of cultural creativity in terms of music and comedy and all sorts of things in that area. Uh, And in recent years, and of course, before that industrial as well, that is the vision that we need for the future. Instead of talking about whether nurses need a 9% pay rise or a 15% pay rise when we've got no money. And I think if you look at the last 10 years in British politics, and we've talked about this, you know, a few times on trigonometry, um, you know, if you think about, you know, two of the big revolts that really rocked British politics, Brexit and then um, Boris Johnson and the 2019 election, you know, in my mind, at least, what actually unites those two moments is that they did both tap into this notion of belief in Britain among Mm. a share of the country that wanted to believe in British institutions, that wanted sovereignty, accountability, that wanted a bit of boosterism, whatever you want to call it, a bit of an optimistic view that actually there are a lot of good things in the country. Yes, there's a lot of things that aren't quite right, but we need to fix them. But basically, somebody who, for all of his faults, uh, and there were many faults with Johnson, I'm certainly not here to defend him as a prime minister, but he did tap into this view held by many people that they are tired of being told over and over again that there is something wrong with them and that there is something wrong with the country. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter had this uh, famous exchange um, where Jimmy Carter had given his speech saying essentially there's something wrong with America. And Reagan replied, look, there's nothing wrong with America. You know, people don't want to live in a country where they're told constantly by people that there is something fundamentally wrong with them, that there is something fundamentally bad. And that's not to say we want to be naive about our problems, but I think people are kind of looking for leaders who are willing to see the good and the bad. And that applies to our history, applies to our culture, applies to our identity. Uh, that people aren't stupid. They know that 300 years of British history and the empire and everything wasn't 100% negative. They know that, right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows we got some things right and we got some things wrong. But it was mixed. It was balanced. And I think when they look at many of the institutions and they look at our national debate, it's now focused overwhelmingly on on the negative, Mm -hmm. on the bad, on what's wrong. I noticed Nigel Bigger, who you've had on your show, has got his book out at the moment on um, Britain's history. And he's making this very point, right, that actually, if you go back and you look through the last 300, 400 years, there are a lot of good things, there are a lot of bad things, but that history was mixed. We need to start believing a little bit more in who we are and where we're going as a country, because it isn't all doom and gloom. Right. Well, it's not. But I actually I go much further than that on that issue, Matt, because I'm allowed to as a foreigner, uh, which is that what you think the Ottomans were woke. You think the Russian Empire was progressive. Who are we comparing ourselves to? Well, exactly. Yeah. Right. So when even when you talk about and and I know that, you know, it's important for in the media environment for us to say, of course, there were some bad things. And of course, the British Empire did terrible things. But that's because we're human. 
And we did what humans have done throughout the, the, the ages. Uh, when you talk about, you know, an issue as contentious as slavery, the only thing, the only thing that makes West the West history of slavery in any way different is we had better technology and we were able to transport people across oceans, number one. Another thing is we ended it. Those are the two differences. Everybody else had slavery. The Trans-Saharan, and I talk about this in the book, the Trans-Saharan slave trade had more people who were victimized by that process than the transatlantic slave trade. Most of them, like, unlike in America, didn't actually pass on their genes because the men were castrated and the women were taken as sex slaves. That's what they were for, right? What are we comparing ourselves to? Why do we keep having to say, of course, we did bad things? Who didn't? Where is this perfect culture that we are comparing ourselves to? I'm tired of this absolutism, Matt. I really am. We have to be able to say, look, we, of course, like all other humans, have done good and bad things, but we're proud of our history. We're not ashamed of ourselves. We're not ashamed of who we are. We're not ashamed of who we've been. And most important, we have a bright future that we are looking forward to. Constantine Kissin, thanks for joining the Substack. Thanks for having me, Matt.